Hello and welcome to episode 67 of the Solid 60. Um, haven't done a banana split in a while. Hopefully once Jaden is feeling better, we can get him back into the hot room and record some good stuff because it is the 29th of December 2019 and the year is quickly coming to a close. I think we've got two days left and I did want to get one in before the arbitrary date on the calendar that marks the end of the 2019 teens i guess this last decade i don't think we need to do a whole wrap-up of the decade but it'd be nice to just give a rundown of what we've seen lately in the last couple of months and more recently star wars and that sort of thing we finally got to the last episode of the mandalorian i started watching the watchman which is amazing and now i'm hooked unfortunately there's only nine episodes and just a couple left for me before it's all over and apparently as far as the main the head writer is concerned that's that's it for him until he has another idea which could take 10 years though it seems hbo is like yeah let's keep going but you don't want it to go game of thrones and dip massively in quality so i'll just have to be happy with what they've done for now which is one of the best pieces of television epic writing i've ever seen and acting and everything else so we'll see Jaden managed to do some parkouring around luna park and injure his neck apparently so i was a bit pissed about that <laughs> you idiot but hopefully he recovers soon and is feeling better and we can at least uh, get the boys back in a bit of fingers crossed um but it's me now and it's gonna have to do i might as well throw one more in before the end of the year uh, it's been i don't know if i could sum up my year personally i've had better ones i've had worse ones 2017 was pretty rough for a lot of reasons i won't go into i mean if that was the decline the beginning of the downhill run that was my last relationship let's see <laughs> if anyone listens to this thing basically I was told something a few days ago and it's decided by my ex that uh, things are going to go the other way but it was pretty rough like for a few years there and now I got to a stage where we can sort of get along and I do get to see the kids so that's that's the main thing and we're all getting along fine enough considering the drama that we've went through in the last two or three years like I said the main thing is I do get to see Gabriel wonderful kid that he is and that it's, it's a bit easier than say it was with Lewis and right now uh, he's in the Philippines so can't get more than a thumbs up from his mum on Facebook right now so it's sort of just got to wait till he comes back and gets a bit old I love you man if you're ever listening to this hopefully things can improve and I pretty much think about the both uh, most of the day and whatever else I can do to get to a point where we can have kind of relationship there should be between a father and son i'm not the best inspiration or role model but i do want to do the best i can fingers crossed again but what was my point yeah <laughs> I, I know i'm 40 but jesus you almost think i was double that age given how easily i uh, ramble on and lose my train of thought but what happened was yeah my most recent ex has a new partner things got out of hand and uh, <laughs> managed to knock her up so that's interesting but I was like, wow, that didn't take long because apparently it's only been a few months so they worked together longer than that. Like, good for them. I've got to be happy for her and at least uh, she's found someone who can give her hope that it's not always going to be that stressful in that arena. Like, in the world of love and hate and wars, and it, it can finally get to a place where someone can make her happy all the time. And, yeah, so that, that really amped up there for a second and I was like, oh, wow, okay, what are you going to do? And she's like, yeah, of course, I'm going to do the thing. Apparently now that's maybe not the case. Uh, it's not going to go that way. She's decided it's too soon. So 
that's fair enough. It's probably true given the new job and there's no maternity leave yet. So yeah, it feels rough though. Like I'm really split down the middle because on one hand I'm happy for her and the other I'm like, damn girl, like hold up. You know, I guess there is a, a twinge of jealousy there together a long time. So it's, it's always going to be some natural feelings of jealousy is a simplistic ter- uh, concept. Like it's just regret that things didn't go better, I suppose. Such is life. And now we're just going to try and make things as easy as possible for everyone concerned. Uh, certain members of her family are never going to come around to the fact that I'm still in her or her our son's life, but that's just they're going to have to deal with because I ain't going nowhere. Anyway, that's that. And yeah, for New Year, hopefully things do improve in both, with both families. And yeah, I mean, Lewis is getting a lot older. He's 10 going on 16. Like he's so smart and together and with it. And I'm like, who is this kid? Sure, he's mine. But then I'll hear him waffle on about something he's seen or enjoyed and i'll be like yeah yeah that's that's my kid the way he can just wax lyrical about something he loves and get all giddy and, and shy when i boost him a bit but he's just so much more switched on and uh, confident most of the time be interesting i can't wait to see where he takes it all also and it, that might be a bit selfish but to be more of a part of being able to help him be whoever he wants to be because that sounds like a hell of a lot of fun and i saw if, and it's silly to reference a meme but it was this guy going down a water slide with he looked a bit older and then two young guys with him on this like giant inner tube the quote was basically yeah my dad took us to the water park we're 24 and 25 or something good times it was more succinct than that but it's, i was just like yep that that'll be me we're gonna all hit the water or wherever i want to be a role model to a point but <laughs> i know he's gonna have better ones but at least i can be a best friend Carried on a bit too much about that. Uh, I do have something to read. I did actually do some research on this guy who was visited by God and went off to Pakistan, Gary Faulkner. Um, I found the IMDb page for a documentary and a film. The documentary was made like a year or two after. It's called Binny Boy. Looks pretty rough, but it looks fun. I might watch it at some point if it ever pops up on one of those streaming services, but it looks a bit too indie for that. The movie was a bit bigger. It was made in 2016 after... Obviously, Osama bin Laden was already killed by the professionals when they finally got around to it. And, yeah, Nicolas Cage. So, big names in it. I think he's the biggest. There's no one else that really stands out. Russell Brand is in there. It was probably one of his last films before he just started doing podcasts. But, uh, you know, and writing. It didn't do too well critically, but it's only got a 5 as the meta score. Or 43, actually. 5.1 is the IMDb score. I sort of... Um, overdoing the joke there it might have been a bit on the nose about how how far can you take a crazy old man running around the world and worldwide grows 372,000 so yeah it really lost I hope they could write it off in tax or something Jesus that uh, didn't make any money I mean there was no marketing for it it didn't go into the cinemas Cage has done a lot of straight to video stuff but it looked like fun just from the, the clip I saw so if it, again if it pops up I'll watch that one too just because I feel like a what a personal connection to the guy. I mean, he seems insane. you just got to admire that sort of pluck. He's going to get out and be one out of 20 million. Like, he's just one of those people that stands out, not for all very good reasons, but still a colourful character nonetheless. And that's it. I couldn't find any other news on the dude other than the couple of articles that surfaced and, and TV spots that he did back after he was arrested and sent home in 2010 there was that article i read a year later and that seems to be about it there's zero other information online there's a facebook page for him but that hasn't been updated since 2011 so yeah it's really tough 
it's it's like he just disappeared so which sort of makes sense it's kind of a given his ability to disappear into the hills when he wants to so maybe that's what he i'm hoping he's alive though i mean i know he was coming down with some kidney issue he would need a dialysis so here's to you i'll be having a drink after this in your honor gary faulkner so if anyone else knows more or can has got better google foo, foo than me in touch because even wikipedia has just got like nothing it's all about the movie and there's no page on the guy himself which i think is a bit of a disappointment anyway i do have an article to read it's called writers blocked in fantasy fiction is now offensive it's a bit newer than the last one it's 18th of may this year 2019 the subtitle is persecution is endemic in the vicious world of young adult publishing and it's by karen yosman and it's got a really cool graphic up the top it's a unicorn coming out of a uh, forest along with an imp and what looks like a golem and then there's a bunch of people in suits with pitchforks very cute it's in the spectator so we'll see what that's got to say i haven't read it at all it just seems like in my wheelhouse it's talking about censorship and cancelling speaking of which there was a bit going on today regarding the actor that played Chewbacca in the latest Star Wars movie, which I did see and enjoy quite a bit. I want to review that on Banana Split, though, so we'll get there. Apparently, he'd been calling out people on Twitter, and I think it was basically Twitter, for not liking the movie and just calling them all toxic haters. And there was a few women that expressed their opinion about it not being as good as The Last Jedi in terms of empowerment for women and things like that. And he really got stuck into them. And some of his fans went after the girls and got a little bit too personal. So that's not cool. Um, the dude seems to need to slow his role a little. And certainly his fans need to. But then again, like this this bandwagoning to quickly cancel the guy and call him out. And there's this, this huge... Well, I wouldn't say it's huge. It's probably just a few people getting outraged and then that gets clicks. But it's a bit too knee-jerk. Like, you need to sit down and calm down. All right, this guy, obviously, he's taken the bait and, and is a bit sensitive about anyone criticising the work. He hasn't learned to turn the other cheek. But relax. Everyone's going to forget about it in a day or two. So let's just dial down the hate on both sides and, and try and find a happy, neutral ground where everyone can come back and find a few things they do agree on and go from there i don't know it just seems like everyone's too quick to get pissed off at someone and and condemn them permanently so hoping that he can get some advice from fellow actors because i know ryan johnson and mark hamill spend a fair bit of time on social media dealing with critics and they usually do pretty well with it they don't go after people or have mobs go after them they usually manage to come off fairly like they don't exactly take a high road but when they come down on someone, they do it in such a way as to just, it's basically murdered by words material. And it doesn't seem vindictive. It's just like, well, they're fucking right. Wow. Yeah, they really tore that guy to shreds. Like, the, I guess they pick the low-hanging fruit, like the real moron posts that are just asking to get torn apart. Whereas, say, they both go after pretty much all the Star Wars actors and writers and directors at some point, other than, say, like Catherine Bigelow or whoever. Like at the top, it's a lot of them have gone after Trump and Kirkman and people like that. Now and then some fan will go too far and they'll highlight them and just go like, come on, man. Whereas this guy, I think it's a bit like the left eating itself, that whole thing, because it's a woman that said it's not woke enough, basically, and he's turning on her and going, what the hell are you talking about? And it, it just seems to get a little bit too personal. Yeah, it's just interesting to see when you've got people ostensibly on the same side, just guys, we're supposed to be in the same team here. So let's find a way to get along anyway back to this article <laughs> we'll get there eventually and fantasy fiction is now offensive 
obviously a bit of a clickbait headline, but let's see if she can back it up. It was Lionel Shriver who saw the writing on the wall. Giving a keynote speech at the Brisbane Writers' Festival three years ago in which she decried the scourge of modern identity politics, Shriver observed the dogma of cultural appropriation, which demands no less than complete racial segregation in the arts, had not yet wrapped its osseous fingers around the publishing industry. But she warned, this same sensibility is coming to a bookstore near you. Reader, it has come. Next month, a young Asian-American author called Amelie Wen, Zhao, was due to celebrate the publication of her debut novel, Blood Air, the first in three-part fantasy series for which Zhao was reportedly paid a six-figure sum by Delacorte Press, a children's imprint of Penguin Random House. Set in the Russian-inspired Cerulean Empire, Blood Air tells the story of a magic-wielding princess who is forced to flee her kingdom following her father's murder. In a world where the princess is the monster, oppression is blind to skin colour, and good and evil exist in shades of grey, comes a dark Anastasia retelling, blurb the publishers. Before the manuscript had even reached the presses, a furor erupted when Zhao, a 26-year-old banker born in Paris and raised in Beijing, was accused of racism. Armed with merely the blurb and a handful of excerpts from the book, her critics, many of them fellow authors, editors and bloggers in the young adult genre, repeatedly tore into Zhao on such sites as Twitter and Goodreads, outraged by, among other things, the novel's depiction of indentured labour. For despite Bloody's Slavic setting, her detractors assumed the plot was inspired by American slavery, and thus something Zhao had no business writing about because she is not black. In a tirade that might surprise students of Russian antiquity, one critic reportedly raged, racist-ass writers like Amelie Wen Zhao literally take black narratives and force it into Russia when that shit never happened in history. Well, obviously, it's a fictional book, so it wouldn't have happened in history. Oh, Jesus. One prominent writer even claimed the very premise of a fictional world in which oppression is blind to skin colour was racist and joined others in pillaring Zhao for creating and then killing a black character in the novel. No matter that the only discernible evidence for the character's ethnicity was a vague description of dark curls and bronze skin. Another YA author, Ellen O, joined in the fray by piously tweeting, Colorblindness is extremely tone-deaf. Learn from this and do better. Was herself forced to issue an apology after being castigated for using the phrase tone-deaf, a turn of events that would be comical, but not so preposterous. Wait, what, what's wrong with tone-deaf? Is it offensive to deaf? Come on. Come on, guys, this is what I'm talking about. For Zhao, the onslaught proved too much, and in January she released a statement titled To the Book Community, An Apology, in which she confirmed she had withdrawn Blood Air from publication. However, in a vault face last month, Zhao revealed that with help from multicultural scholars and sensitivity readers, she had rewritten the novel and would now be publishing it in November. Would that Zhao were an outlier? If anything, hers is now a typical experience in the vicious world of YA publishing. Last year, another fantasy novel about a young protagonist rebelling against a sectarian society inspired an 8,000-word blog post calling it the most dangerous, offensive book I've ever read and set off a wave of recrimination against the author on social media. Around the same time, Kira Drake, a marketing consultant turned YA writer, agreed to pulp hardback copies of her debut fantasy novel and rewrite it with help from, you guessed it, sensitivity readers after critics claimed it contained damaging depictions of Native Americans. Because this persecution on the most spurious grounds is endemic, and because so many of its actors are themselves YA authors, plenty of those brandishing the proverbial pitchforks of, have, upon publication of their own novels, subsequently found themselves staring down the sharp side of a four-pronged rod. In February, 
Cossico Jackson, a gay, black, erstwhile sensitivity reader who had previously joined in the skirmishes against other authors, pulled his own debut novel, A Place for Wolves, after his peers pronounced it insensitive to Muslims on account of its Albanian Muslim antagonist. Probably because he's not also one himself, I mean. Yeah, I'm really all about, like, a writer should be able to write any character of any ethnicity, race, whatever. Obviously, a story written by someone of that race and colour is going to be more informed by their background and potentially better, but come on. Nor is the contagion confined to American authors. Last month, John Boyne, best known for the Holocaust novel The Boy in Striped Pyjamas, received such a barrage of abuse prior to the publication of his latest book, My Brother's Name is Jessica, which features a transgender central character, that it was briefly forced off Twitter. Critics labelled the book transphobic, suggesting that because Boyne is not transgender, the story lacked authenticity and its title misgendered the fictional protagonist. At almost the same moment that Boyne was deleting his Twitter account, Lincolnshire-based Zoe Marriott, a prolific writer of YA fiction, was also being hounded on the side over her new fantasy novel The Hand, The Eye and The Heart, because it's set in fairy tale China. One prominent YA blogger warned, white authors need to stay the hell away from stories of people of colour. Curiously said blogger's day job involves manning the tills at Foils, one of London's most revered bookshops. Pity the poor sod who dares trouble her for a copy of Othello, or Tolkien for that matter. The father of fantasy fiction has come in for criticism for his portrayal of orcs in The Lord of the Rings. Some feel his work is racialized, and what's a sensitive young bookseller to do if a young customer requests a C.S. Lewis, whose Narnia books are branded blatantly racist and misogynistic by fellow fantasy author Philip Pullman? Pullman has since been labelled transphobic himself after tweeting in October that he was finding the trans argument impossible to follow. Ah, oh, speaking of that, yeah, J.K. Rowling got absolutely hammered last week due to retweeting again some... I, I, was that not just retweeting, it was standing up for some blogger or host of some show that's reasonably transphobic. And uh, she's like, stand up for whoever her name was and... Yeah, a lot of people have dragged it through the mud. Which, yeah, I can kind of see the point. Like, that was pretty, um, what's the word? Tone deaf <laughs> on her part. So, I'm not totally 100% up on all the details of it, but just from what I did read, it did, it did seem like she was a little... She could have played that better. Like, just stayed out of it. Like, the chick wasn't fired. She was... Her contract wasn't renewed. What she had said, I can't remember the details now, but I remember coming away from it thinking, yeah, that's a little bit too rough. It's TERFs. They're TERFs, apparently, which is like a feminist, but they don't believe that they're real women. I can see why a lot of people would be offended by that. Once you start seeing goblins in fairyland, there's no end to it. Even the most enlightened author can cause offence. It's only a matter of time before it begins to eat away at every genre until, as Shriver predicted, all that's left is memoir. Already, poets might understandably feel anxious. Last summer, The Nation, one of America's most venerable literary magazines, published a 49-line poem about homelessness which was swiftly accused of co-opting a black vernacular and criticised for its use of the word crippled. Instead of defending the verses it had previously deemed worthy of publication, the magazine immediately issued an apology so spineless one of its own columnists said it resembled a letter from a re-education camp. It's not just writers who ought to be worried. The logical apogee of a prohibition on cultural intercourse is a future in which each person is allowed to document only his or her precise subjective experience. A future, in other words, where fiction is history. And that, sounds like a very dreary prospect for us all. Yeah, I have to agree with her in all of that. Obviously, there's a place for being a bit more sensitive. and It's like comics, stand-ups whinging about, oh, you can't be offensive anymore. Just write better. There was a time when you could get away with being a dick. Even some of Eddie Murphy's stuff was fairly back when Raw was a huge hit, and I loved it. 
but it's when you watch it again now, it's like, ooh, that's uh, pretty homophobic and, and certain elements of it couldn't fly today, and that's fine because we're in a better place. Yeah, this sort of thing, like not being able to write about sort of a kingdom modelled on ancient China because you're not Chinese. I mean, come on. Come on. That's bullshit. So that wasn't that long. Only 25 minutes into this, so I might see what this next one is because... I like to make these around maybe 45 at most. They do end up longer, but weirdly, I did hear somewhere, I think it was on a podcast, I could be wrong, that that's, I've been driving a lot, I haven't crashed yet, so I'm still in the same job, thankfully, and it's paying okay. I'm doing a stupid amount of hours, like at least 10, usually 12 to 13 a day. Um, yesterday I worked, which was a Saturday. I worked Boxing Day. I'm probably going to work News Day. It's insane. But at least I get to listen to the odd podcast again. And yeah, someone mentioned that the amount of time you've got to get someone's attention and keep it is about 20 minutes. I think they were referring to like lectures and say someone giving a speech. And that's why you need to... Oh, it was TED Talks. That's right. He was talking about how his TED Talk was only 10 minutes long and that's why most TED Talks are around that amount of time because people just drift off after that. And it was a bit like, well, shit, there goes most of my podcasts because uh, they're well over 10 minutes long. But I like to think people keep them going now and then and sure, you might fade in and out. Like I, I find myself doing that even with really interesting ones like 1A when it's on a topic I'm really into. Like they did a series on video games recently and I'd be driving and suddenly my mind would wander and I'd be thinking about what I'd be doing later that day or whatever's stressing me out and I'd be like, oh, I just missed the last minute. And how often do you rewind to hear it again? Like, you're just going to keep rolling. So that's fair enough. I fully expect a fair bit of that to happen with my own. This article is quite short as well. So I'll read one more. For the people that can last longer than 10 minutes, <laughs> I think this is worth a read. And it's by, I believe it's a Travis Johnson. Yeah, it is. July. I remember saving this just after he wrote it. And uh, I was like, oh, this is going to go on my next podcast. And I uh, finally got here. So it's good that I can get this ticked off because it really seemed, again, up my alley because it's something that I often do. I'd be casually classist. And so it's good to get called out on that sort of thing. It's basically when people knock bogans. And being of undeniably bogan sensibilities myself now and then, is it's a little hypocritical. And I can see why these days it's problematic. I remember even doing it in France once with my cousin. It was the nice cousin, Peter. Uh, Jerome's perfectly lovely now, but at that time it was, uh, we locked horns a little bit. It was like, oh, that woman looks like a whore. Because she'd be dressed a bit funny. Uh, and yeah, it was just a bit more fo- like we're arguing about immigration laws. And he was like, oh, build a wall type thing. But now he's perfectly nice. Like he's got a kid. He's living in Singapore and just super cool whenever i've had any kind of interaction with him so glad someone and i didn't have the grace or ability but someone obviously has uh, managed to tame him it can happen whereas my other cousin nick has gone the other way became really white right wing and conspiracy theorist which is a whole nother issue there's got to be an article somewhere about how easy it is to slip into that world of like the seduction of the right wing and you can just start buying into all this bullshit there was i think that was what one of those joe rogan podcasts was about it was or 1a it was basically a woman that had come out of being right wing she'd gone along with she had a boyfriend and she saw him posting a bunch of like racist memes and she was like what the hell man you know like this is bullshit who are you 
And he's like, well, just watch these videos and, and, and tell me I'm full of shit. And so she watched them, and apparently they were good enough to get her to join in and become a fully-fledged member of a couple of borderline white supremacist groups. And she set up the hotel for uh, one of the main leaders of, like, whatever right-wing group was going to Charlottesville and all this sort of thing. And I think after Charlottesville, that's what brought her out of it. But that's really interesting how perfectly reasonable people can get sucked into that sort of thing. Next week or whenever this pops up again, I'm like, all right, let's sit down and get it done. For example, tackling casual classism, the last allowable prejudice. It doesn't really roll off the tongue. It's not a super clickbait article. So I, like headline, I've got to give him um, points for that. So turns out classism, particularly in the arts, is a major trigger for me. I mean, sure, it's always been a bugbear. I'm constantly amazed at the assumption of relative wealth, privilege and access in the film industry in particular, but related spheres as well. You just kind of learn to keep your mouth shut to get along. No, I didn't go to that school. No, I've never been to that city or that festival. No, I'm not popping down to Dark Mofo anytime soon. Thank you very much, whatever that is. That's just passive background class bullshit. You get it everywhere. Active classism, however, makes me see red. Some poor bastard recently made a couple of cracks about not seeing movies on discount days or in bogan suburbs because of the people in the audience. And I really tore him a new one. Went well over the top. That was uncalled for, but here's the thing. Inherent in his statement were a couple of assumptions. One, that people too poor to pay full price, or who live in or go to less wealthy areas, are inherently lesser. They can't comport themselves appropriately in a theatre. Two, that his audience, which were film industry people, would agree with him. Well, screw that. That is classism, and that is gatekeeping. That is putting a ring around a group of people and saying they are less because of factors and circumstances beyond their control. Nobody chooses to be born poor or working class. Nobody should have to be ashamed of it or have to keep their mouth shut when people with wealth, with privilege, with educational and professional opportunities make jokes like this. Yeah, fair enough. One time I went to the cinema in Parramatta and just a bunch of yahoos carrying on and I could easily use that anecdotal evidence to do the same thing and just go, oh, it's out west and all these jokers and I'm never going to go to a cinema there again. But then I've been to Blacktown quite a few times another say Cameltown, Reading, Cinema, not had an issue at all. So yeah, I, I see what he's fair enough. I mean, it was just a joke, but you can, even that sort of casual classism can uh, be a slippery slope. He goes on. It drives me insane because people who are normally on the right side of a whole swathe of other identity or social issues are absolutely blind to class. And the intersectionality collapses in a heap when confronted with class and wealth related issues. It's not my job to educate you has become the battle cry when stouting online with people with limited educational opportunities. Mere access to the internet is not the panacea we would like it to be. People need to be taught how to learn. We joke about the dumb rednecks voting against their own interests, failing to see the inherent tragedy in a whole group of educationally, economically and socially disadvantaged people being encouraged to do so by vested corporate and government interests. Believe me, these people will be at the absolute coalface of the seemingly inevitable environmental and economic collapse that is looming in the near future. They will bear the brunt. They should, and in a better world would, be allies. But increasingly, the left refuses to engage with the working class, and this is key, in terms they can understand. We shout at them in a language they don't know, and call them dumb for not understanding. Stupid, bloody Bergens, eh? Goddamn Queensland rednecks. Yeah, I think this was not just after, but a while after uh, there was an election, which Labor lost, and it was mostly because of Queensland. Thanks, fuckers. And there was a lot of anger directed at that community, but... Could be right there. They need to be uh, helped and not pilloried, if that's possible. If there's some way to get them on side other than just making fun of them, then maybe try that. 
But let's circle back to the arts. Those limited educational economic opportunities mean that working class voices are now largely increasingly absent from the arts simply because the means to enter the sector and have a viable career is beyond so many. We had a brief shining moment in the 70s and 80s when arts education, like all education, was attainable for the working class. God bless you, Goff. That is now no longer the case. And the increasing trend to view tertiary education as an industry focused purely on career outcomes means that arts degrees are viewed with distrust and the working class are encouraged to deride them. You not only have to struggle to break out of cultural norms, what are you going to fall back on? What are you going to do for a crust? But then clear the economic hurdle of actually paying for your education. And thank you so much for lowering the hex repayment threshold, you monstrous mother humpers. And so the arts once again become the playground of dilettantes, people who can afford to go to art school, film school, WAPA, NIDA and so on, Class lines get reinforced, old boys networks are the rat lines that lead to government funding for projects of size and ambition, and once again the voice is being heard and the stories being told of a particular type, stripe and wealth. We see it in recent Sydney Film Festival opener Palm Beach, a very pleasant film about rich people with no significant problems, and we see it in the well-meaning but frankly patronising The Heights, which sets its drama in a social housing project and then populates it with characters who are upwardly mobile and equipped to move beyond the setting. The constraints that keep people in such places simply don't exist for them. It's almost laughable. I swear to you, sometimes it's like they live. I jab my elbow into people next to me saying, doesn't that look weird to you? And they just shrug. Class-based cultural ghettoization is invisible to them. But I promise, if you're attuned to it, it's impossible to ignore and it's endemic. Well, I'm done with it. I'm so goddamn tired of classism being the last allowable prejudice in the broad left. If your intersectionality doesn't include class consciousness, it is useless. Not just to me, personally, because of my background and my struggle, but functionally and broadly useless as a political ideology and strategy, because you see the people you actually need to achieve your aims on the national stage as beneath contempt. We have seen this in the last federal election. What should have been a slam dunk for Labour became a savage rout, largely because the language of the discourse alienated Labour's traditional voting base, and the contempt you feel for those who bought the big lies of the LNP and Clive Palmer, and I know you feel it, is reinforced because the opportunity for people from rural, impoverished or working class backgrounds to tell their stories is denied them. The cultural mechanism for engendering empathy and understanding is absent. They can't tell their tales and you don't know how to communicate yours to them. The bitter irony is that people accusing the working class of voting against their own interests are, by deed if not by ballot, committing the same sin by alienating them literally doing the one thing that prevents them from achieving meaningful political and social change. You can't mock and deride people and then act surprised when they're not your ally. That's simply preposterous and it's amazing to me how many people simply fail to grasp what is to me a pretty basic concept. But fundamentally I'm done letting casual classism slide in my own personal sphere. It's not just offensive to me, it's killing us. If you're of a mind to, you can draw a straight line from the fragmentation of the left to our inability to meaningfully combat waves hand vaguely at the whole world we need to stop we need to check ourselves we need to check our friends i honestly expect this rant which hilariously started as a brief facebook post before it all came pouring out to fall on deaf ears because trying to get people to question their own assumptions and prejudices always does i've waved this flag before and it's disheartening to see who refuses to salute it but screw it if there's no war but class war you need to have a good long think about which side you're actually on because from here in the trenches, your uniform is suspect. Or suspect, even. I don't know if that's his website, The Curb. KJB Review. Sure. And that is Travis Akbar. It looks like a cool show. I would read this too, but 
It's a new indigenous comedy series called KGB. It looks awesome. Where am I going to see that? Maybe ABC if I ever watched uh, Free to Wear or even turned on the ABC app that's on the TV. I should check that out sometime. I'm going to have a look right now. That's it for this 29th of December 2019, as I said before. And I'd like to thank you for sticking with me to the 40th minute. As always, it's been a pleasure. I love you all. Peace out.